Good morning. It's wonderful to look out and see everybody here this morning. Before we get started, let's, I want to ask you a, a question. How big is God in your minds? How big is our God in our hearts? We've heard the old concern of even taught lessons on it before is I used to tell God how big my problems were. Now I tell my problems how big my God is. Which one of those do we fall into? Do we tell our problems? Thank you, sir. Lord, I got this problem. It's, 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 I can't handle it. It's too big. Or do we tell this problem, just keep coming. My God's big enough to take care of you and every other you bring with you. This morning I'm going to be uh, going back to 1 Kings chapter 20. And from reading 1 Kings chapter 20, that's pretty much what it's going to talk about. And we're going to see some problems that Israel had. And it's going to be some of the same problems that we face today. In 1 Kings chapter 20, well actually in the whole in 1 Kings all the messages so far is given important teachings about who God really is. We see that Israel needs to learn the God that they serve. But you know that's something that each and every one of us, well, everybody around us needs to learn this today. We need to learn who the God really is that we, uh, we serve. One of the problems that people have when it comes to the Lord is they do not understand who they're actually serving. The Lord is too small in their minds. And so the Lord has to expand our understandings about Him. Give us the wisdom. We make huge mistakes. A lot of people wreck their lives when we do not see how large our God really is. So if we look at 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning, we're going to see if our God is too small in our own eyes as we consider the numerous mistakes made throughout this chapter. Starting in 1 Kings chapter 20, the first 12 verses, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see some problems in Israel. Now the attention turns back to Ahab as king over Israel. We find that he is having trouble in his reign. Now the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, gathered his army and 32 other kings, attacked Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. And a message is sent to Ahab, which simply says, your silver, your gold, and the best of your wives and children are now mine. The amazing thing about it is Ahab said, okay, they're yours. Ahab, they didn't say the worst of your wives and the worst of your children. He wanted the cream of the crop, the best. And Ahab still says, they're yours. He agrees to the terms. <clears throat> he responds in verse 4 that all that he has belonged to the king of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 4, he said, And the king of Israel announced and said, My Lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine, 
and all that I have. In other words, he's telling him, everything is yours. Perhaps, seeing how easy it was for Ahab to agree to these terms, the king of Syria now sends another message to him. This time he says, he is going to, also going to send officials throughout your houses, and they will take whatever they want. Verse 20. Uh, chapter 20, verse 6. Now this is too much for Ahab. He summons the elders of Israel and informs them of Ben-Hadad's demands. The elders tell, and the people tell Ahab that he cannot agree to those terms for peace. So Ahab sends a message back that this is too much. I agree to the first offer. I'll give you the best of my wives and my children, my gold and my silver and all. But I cannot agree to the second. We see that in chapter 20, verse 9, when he says, Wherefore he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell the Lord, my Lord, the king, all that thou didst send for thy servant. At first I will do, but this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. First <clears throat> uh, Kings 29. Now the message is delivered to Ben-Hadad, who is not happy with Ahab's answer. Since Ahab would not agree, they're going to go to war. Now in verse 10, Ben-Hadad sends a message that he is going to turn the city to dust. He tells them there would not be enough left of Samaria for his men to even take a handful of dust. Ahab responds in the war, a war of words in verse 11 that a person putting on armor should not be talking like the one who is taking his armor off. In a sense, do not count your chickens before they hatch. Now with this change, the armies of both nations prepared to fight. Now we're going to see in 1 Kings 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verses 13 through 25, a surprising degree. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 20, 1 Kings said, Behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hath thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thy hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Verse 13 is extraordinary and surprisingly. Ahab is a very wicked king. And we were supposed that this big army and all coming up to him was a deserved judgment against Ahab and Israel. But a prophet comes to Ahab with a surprising message. The Lord said that this vast army, this great multitude, will be given into Ahab's hand. Now we have to stop and say, why is God doing this? The end of verse 13 tells us, then you will know that I am the Lord. How many times have we prayed and asked the Lord to help us through a situation? Pray and ask the Lord to help us in our travels. Pray and ask the Lord to help me do whatever trials, tribulations, stumbling, whatever we're in front of us. And He helped us through it. Did we learn from it? Did we learn that our God is Lord? God is still showing Himself to Ahab. He's attempted to turn Ahab and Israel back to Him. So the Lord decrees victory for Ahab and Israel. Ahab wants to know 
How is this going to happen? And how the battle will start. I'd be just happy the Lord's going to do it for me. But he wants to know how you're going to do it. And when are you going to do it? Now the prophet explains that service under district governors will be God's instruments for victory. Now, we must understand that this is a completely hopeless situation as far as looking at it with human eyes or on paper. There was a reason why Ahab was agreeing to give over all his gold, his silver, his best wives, and his children. It wasn't because he was tired of all of it or they were getting on his nerves. Syria was going to wipe them out. Looking at it with human eyes, Ben Hadad had left, had laid siege on to Samaria and has an unbeatable army before them. This is further made clear in verse 15 that the total army for Israel amounts to only 7,000. While Syria numbers are great multitudes. Ahab sees that he is way outnumbered. There is no way Ahab is going to win this battle looking at it in the human eyes. Ben-Hadad and his king certainly felt this way because in verse 12, we see that they're not planning for a military success or anything, but are drinking away. There is no way that Israel win this battle itself. There's that itself. That the Lord has said they will. With the battle to begin, Behadad gives a fairly incomprehensible oh, command. He says in verse 18, If the people coming from Israel have come for peace, take them alive. But if they have come out for war, take them alive. I had to read that verse two or three times. Now the text has emphasized Behadad's drunkenness. Pretty much. We've seen in verse 12 when it says, And it came to pass when Behadad heard this message that he was drinking, he and the kings in the pavilions that he said unto his servants, Set yourself in array, and they set themselves in array against the city. And in verse 16, he says, And they went out at noon, but Behadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions. He's still drinking. He and the kings, the 32 kings that helped him. So it tells us here that he's pretty much in his drunkenness and he commands them to take these people alive. It don't matter if they come out to fight or if they come out in peace, take them alive. His commands may reflect this, his conditions of drunkenness, but it may also be that Behadad thinks that Israel is so weak that he can take the people alive who actually come out prepared to fight. Either way, Ben-Hadad suffers a dramatic defeat. It wasn't because of Ahab's army was so great. It was because our God is so great. After this blow, the Sumerians retreat. But the prophet comes back to Ahab and tells him that Ben-Hadad is coming back next spring. So make preparations so it should be ready next time. We see that in chapter 20, verse 22, when he said, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself and mark, and see what thou doest, for at the return of the year 
the king of Syria will come up against thee. He's telling him he's coming back to fight, so strengthen yourself. In other words, get closer to God. <clears throat> we are told what the Assyrians are thinking as they make preparation for the attack the next spring. We see here in verse 23, In the service of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hill, therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will, shall be stronger than they. <coughs> here we're told that the Syrians are thinking that Israel's gods are the gods of the hills. But if we fight them in the plains, then we will be stronger than they are. Now we see in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 26 through 34, that's a failed victory. In verse 26, And it came to pass that returned a year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Apek to fight against Israel. Here we see in that the spring had come around, and Ben-Hadad has come up to fight against Israel again. Now once again we see Israel is completely outnumbered. They're ready this time. The Syrians got them outnumbered again. They think. Now look at verse 27. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. We see it here in verse 27. It's picturing Israel as two little flocks of goats coming up against the Syrians who filled the complete countryside. But a man of God tells Ahab that the Lord would give victory to Israel because the Syrians said that the Lord is the God of the hills and not of the valleys. So victory would come again to show everyone that the Lord is the true God. Gideon tells us that Israel strikes down 100,000 Syrians in one day. The rest fled and were killed by a wall that fell on them. Now Ben-Hadad also runs away, but this time they're going to capture him. Now for time's sake, we ain't got time to read the whole chapter, but I encourage you to read it. It's very interesting. His servants tell him before he is captured to put on sackcloth, to put ropes around their neck because they hear that the kings of Israel are very merciful. Perhaps Ahab will spare your life. So they go for the plan. They go to Ahab wearing sackcloths and ropes. A servant of Ben-Hadad sends a message, please let me live. Ahab answers, does he still live? He is my brother. Chapter 20, verse 32. So as they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Verse 32. When the servant sees on this at the good sign and says, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. So Ben-Hadad comes out telling Ahab all the cities and bazaars and all that he would return back to Israel. Ahab accepts his turn and releases Ben-Hadad. We're going to see in verses 35 through 43 a condemning message. 
A message comes to one of the sons of the prophet who goes up to another and says, Strike me. But the man refused. So he said in verse 36, that since you did not obey the voice of the Lord, a lion will strike you down. As soon as that man left, a lion met him and struck him down. So then the son of the prophet goes to another man and says, Strike me. Well, it seems that the lesson has been learned. Because this man strikes him and wounds him. And I stopped there and asked, while well, reading the story, why would this man ask someone else to strike him? And why would the Lord strike him down? Why did the Lord want somebody to strike the son of the prophet? As Paul Harvey says the rest of the story. The son of the prophet now disguises himself with a bandage over his eyes. And he approaches King Ahab with a story. He said that he went into the middle, middle of the battle and another soldier brought me a person to guard. If he turns up missing for any reason, then it will be your life for his life or else pay a tithe of silver. But I got busy and the captured man is now missing. <clears throat> the one I was supposed to guard, I let him get away. Ahab pronounced a judgment that what he said should happen. So now it's either your life or a talent of silver. The son of the prophet rips off the bandage, revealing himself as one of the prophets to Ahab and declares that the same decoration is on Ahab. <clears throat> you let out of your hand the one that the Lord had devoted to destruction. Your life will be for his life and your people for his people. Ahab's response to this message is to be vexed and desolate as he came to Samaria. We see in verse 43, <clears throat> chapter 20. Now my question to you, after listening to what Ahab done and how he's done and how the, the uh, Israel and everybody has looked upon God, is your God too small? As we went through this story, this text, 1 Kings chapter 20, I hope we were able to see the number of mistakes that were made by so many people when it comes to how they look at and understand the true nature of our God. Now the message of God was that everyone would know that He is the Lord. First of all, your God is too small if you think God cannot do good in spite of evil. <clears throat> the whole scene begins with the surprising goodness of God in the face of evil. Ahab, we're told, is the most wicked king Israel will have. But even still, God does good for Ahab and Israel, giving them victory twice. Now these victories are completely undeserved, looking at it in a human eyes. But this is what God does. God constantly does good in the face of evil. God makes it rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God would do good for his own glory in the lives of very wicked people. If we think that God cannot do this, then our God is too small in our eyes. Secondly, your God is too small if you think that God showing you good means 
your obedience is unnecessary. This is another huge mistake that we can make. Since God blesses people undeservingly, we can then think that we can do what we want. <clears throat> Just because God shows mercy to the unjust and goodness to the wicked does not mean that our obedience is not required. I want us to see that this is exactly the path that Ahab takes. Since God gave him victory twice, well, he just let Ben-Hadad go, even though that was not the Lord's will. He thought that he did not need to listen to the word of God. Your God is too small if you think that you can disregard what he says. The son of the prophet amplified this. He goes to another person and tells that person to strike him after the first one didn't. We would be very tempted to just say, like we read in verse 35, but the person was condemned and attacked by a lion for not doing what the Lord said. It's not for us to use our own logic to nullify what God has said. We're not supposed to take God's word and then use our own opinion on what it means and how we should do it. God said to do it, and that's really all that matters. God said to strike that person, but he refused. God said to destroy Ben-Hadad, but Ahab refused. God gave Ahab this king, but Ahab did not listen to God's will. Again, think about how easy it would have been to use logic to negate God's will here. We might think that we should be compassionate at this moment. Well, he's a human. He just messed up. I'm sure he learned from it. We have to do what God tells us to do. But human capacity is not what was called for at that moment. Rather, God desired judgment. There's a time for mercy, and there's a time for condemnation and judgment. Ahab acts like the Assyrians with their false uh, worldview of God. The Syrians here thought that God was only powerful in the hills. God had to show them that he is powerful in every place and every aspect of life. Ahab did not see this either. A multitude of the world population today still does not th uh, think this way either. They think that God does not apply to every area of life. That God cannot tell them what to do. They feel like that they can do what we want to do. Or think that we can think that God's area of our lives is only for certain days, certain times, and certain places. God is showing that He is over every area of our life, not just Sunday morning. God is doing you good so that you will submit to him in every area of your life. God did this good for Ahab and Israel so that they would see that they must give their lives completely to him. God rules over us in our homes and our jobs and in our communities, in the church and every place and every relationship that we have. God is in charge. There are things that God asks us to do that seem unreasonable. I agree. And it's one time I hear one that catches me. He's asking us not to repay evil for evil. 
when people do things against us. Now, that's a hard one for me to... I have to pray and ask God's help for that. If somebody does me wrong, I'm one of those that want to say, Oh, buddy, you're in trouble. But I'm having to pray for that. But we are to do what God says. Third, the last point I want to make this morning. Your God is too small if you're not full of thanksgiving. Now, I'm not talking about full of a good meal on Thanksgiving Day. I'm talking about full in your heart for thanksgiving to God. Ahab shows no gratitude for anything that has happened. He does not praise God for the Lord's victory. And this is shocking. If I knew I was way outnumbered in a battle like that, and this I so easily win it, I knew there was supreme intervention there. It wasn't my doings. Ahab was about to turn over all his silver, his gold, along with the best of his wife and his children. Ahab had no option. Ahab was going to lose so much, but God rescued him. But there was no thankfulness. A lack of thankfulness shows that we did not think God is sovereign over our circumstances. We, did, we think what happened was because of ourselves, or we think what happened was just pure luck. Or what happened was because of someone else coming to our rescue. We failed to see that it was God who was with us, so we did not give thanks. <clears throat> now, amazingly, Ahab was told that this was God doing it, and he still was not thankful, and he still did not change. Your God is too small in your mind if you're not constantly think thankful for everything that happens in our lives. Now, in closing... Your God is too small if your response to Him is to be angry and some rather than repentant. When God comes to Ahab through the prophet and tells him that he had made a mistake. Now we're told when Nathan came to David and told him he made a mistake, he right away repented and got things right with God. Now, did he make more mistakes? Sure he did. But here when this prophet comes to Ahab and tells him he made a mistake, Ahab's response is not repentance. His response is to be angry. His response is to be resentful. But we need to understand God with this. God is not moved by our tenter tampons like human parents mistakenly do. As humans, we sometimes learn that if we get angry and resentful, then we can get our way. We can push people around through fear. To get what we want. Children throw temper tantrums. What some do. To get what they want. And too often. Us parents and grandparents cave in. God does not cave in. God does not express sorrow. For upset and Ahab. God wants us to listen. And seek repentance. But we can miss that. Did you notice that Ahab. Missed his repentant moment. He did not hear it. It did not click with him because he was defensive rather than listening. There was an offer for atonement. Go back to what the prophet told in his parable in verse 39. When he says, your life shall be for his life, or else you will pay a talent of silver. Now a talent of silver was an impossible sum. But there was an atonement offered in the story the prophet told. Atonement is there if we will pay attention 
to what God is saying. An impossibly high price needs to be paid so that you have your repentance moment. But this is what God wanted to show us so that we would see how great He really is. Our lives should be given over or an impossible high price be paid to make atonement. Now it's a price that no one can afford to pay. But God shows that He's willing to pay that kind of price. This is what God is showing us through Jesus who makes atonement for us. Not with silver and gold, but the impossible high price of death. His death makes atonement for your sins so that you don't have to give your life now. Your God is too small when confronted by sin. You are angry and talking rather than reaching out and grabbing the atonement offer made to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19. First Peter 1, 17 and 19. And if you call on him a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 17, 19. We need to see God confronting our sins as an opportunity to reach forward repentance. Not to be angry or resentful toward God or toward others. But now my question to me, each and every one, is your God too small in your eyes? If you need to be baptized, or maybe you've already been baptized, but you've stepped out of the way. You've been lured out into the world of sin, which is very easy to do. God's too small in your eyes to accept you back in and to help you. I'm here to tell you from studying His Word, our God is a very large God. His love for each and every one of us is a very large giving sacrifice. It's here. If you need the prayers and encouragement of the congregation, come forward and stand and sing a song of invitation.